Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, it's nice for us both to be on the show together, you know, again. Yeah, the, the young guys have kind of kicked us off here. Yeah. I, you know, they're, they're not letting us do this podcast very much anymore. <laughs> That's right. We're certainly not hitting we, it together very often. Yeah, so. we, we do have a lot of it's folks good. doing it now. I mean, they're doing a great job. They so are. it's nice to have that, um, you know, capability in-house. And um, yeah, but it is nice. You and I did this together for a long time, 10 exactly. years. We um, did. Every we did. week. It's been, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a great ride here. Yeah. We're over 500 episodes now yep. and uh but boy the weather has certainly turned nice isn't it i mean it's finally here we had a long hot humid summer yeah it's, and uh it's a great time of the year i mean it's it 80s during the day 50s and 60s at night it's it's really my favorite time of the year you get football and going football, on yeah. football you gotta love football we got yeah. the big game of clemson this weekend yeah. um playing florida state unranked it's, clemson right unranked. you're exactly I'm just right. Mention that. you're just exactly right i mean it is time for them to prove they got something yeah you know <laughs> if they don't if they can't beat florida state which is number four in the country yeah it's gonna be a good game it'll be a good game but they still they got to beat them if they want to prove they got anything and yeah. deserve to be ranked so it's It'll be a great game. And the Gamecocks are playing the dogs again, the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Hopefully we'll we'll win this week, but um, good good effort last week. Glad y'all got a gimme for this weekend. No, it's not a gimme. It's not a gimme. (laughs) Never a gimme, is it? No, it's not a gimme. It's SEC. Yeah, and Georgia's playing nobody. UAB. UAB. Okay. So there you go. Good time of the year. Yeah, it is a great time. We've got the Ryder Cup next week, too. Yes. So not this week, but next week. So that's a lot to look forward to. So sports is... I yeah. love the fall. Great sports time. You're right. <laughs> and uh, speaking of good things, though, I mean, we got a lot of good things to talk about, too. I mean, we're going to start off here talking. Um, well, before I jump into that, uh, no, I guess we should preview the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about cash. Cash. I mean, there's... Should yeah. you be in cash? I know you're excited to get into the show here, but um, yeah, so cash is a question that a lot of folks have, and, you know, the rates right now are are, are pretty high, and it just feels like, hey... I should put everything into cash, and you know, there certainly a portion of what you have should definitely be in cash. But there's some uh, risk in cash as well, and we'll there kind of talk is. through that. Yeah, it's a great topic because I mean, with interest rates rising as much as they have, and and poised to maybe rise a little more, that's a really good issue. You know, the question is where should your money be when it comes to fixed income investments and stocks, for that matter. So, good topic, and we're gonna follow that up with reviewing your estate planning tools. Um, yeah, John, I mean, there's a lot of estate planning tools. There's been a lot of changes over the years with with what tools make sense now for estate planning. So we're going to kind of review that. We're going to review where, kind of where you're at, um, where, where the law is with estate planning, but also what tools are available to you and should you take advantage of any of those. Mm-hmm. So that'll be an important topic. And uh, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey certified counselor and have over 31 years in planning for both corporations and individuals. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Yeah, go check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to all the podcasts you can listen uh, currently or go back and, and listen historically. Um, also have a lot of good tools on the, the webpage. If you've never been there, moneymd.net. Um, just a lot of good, um, you know, budgeting forms. There's also a retirement calculator. 
Um, a lot of good uh, videos and so forth we put out there over the years. Uh, Facebook page, Money MD. That's where we put the prescription of the week every single week. Yeah, and send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll talk about those right here on the show. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this actually comes from the um, uh, Capital Group, which is the first article, the the source of the first article. And uh, Steve, we don't have to remind folks, 2022 was a, a tough year from a stock market standpoint. Uh, S&P 500 was down almost 19%. Um, the NASDAQ was down uh, over uh, 30%. And you know, individual stocks like Amazon, some of them were down 50 and 60%. Really tough year, and the other unusual thing was is the the bond market. Um, the overall yes. bond market was down double digits, about thirteen percent, and that's the only time in the last forty five years that both stocks and bonds were down together. Because normally bonds are a safe haven, you know, during right. difficult times, people go and put more money into bonds, so it props them up, and and you also get the um, the interest rate or coupon associated with it. Um, so the only time in the last 45 years that both stocks and bonds were down together, the other eight times that stocks were down, bonds were up. So there was not a lot right. of places to hide last year. That's right. That's right. And that's where you really had to be vigilant and not be long-term or even intermediate-term in bonds. You had to be very, very short, which is certainly what we did in our portfolios. But, you know, you got to be careful in the bond market. You can't get hurt in times like last year. Fortunately, Markets have made a good recovery since then. They so, have. Um, yeah, it's been a good you year. Know, we're seeing some pretty good recoveries yeah. this year. Key is you just can't fall into a big hole and and you know or get out of the market during that time. You have to stick around for the recovery. And um, yeah, it looks like we're we're probably on the road to recovery, but we'll yeah we'll see. And looking last year, I mean, if you were diversified, there there was one asset class. Um, it was U.S. small value that actually held up relatively well. I think it was down maybe right. a percent, maybe two percent, which when you're looking at the stock market being down 19 to 30 percent, I mean, it was a, Huge, a, yeah. a a reasonable place to to pull money if you needed it. Um, in addition to some of the short-term bond funds, so you got to be diversified. You just don't know which asset class is going to hold up in different market conditions. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Good fact of the week. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is cash. I mean, you yep. know, where should you be with interest rates um, at historic highs and, you know, poised to maybe move higher, but we don't know. Yeah. This this is an article um, from uh, the Capital Group, a gentleman named Mike Gitlin. And um, to say this has been an interesting year in the financial markets, uh, again, is, is an understatement. Um, equities have certainly done well this year. They've been stronger than expected. And the, uh, the yield on the 10-year Treasury um, is up uh, as of September. And so, you know, where are we now as we head into the end of 2023? I mean, um, most people think that you, you know, we're on a cusp maybe of a major transition where, you know, long-term investors can, can still find good income opportunities. Um, a, lot, a lot of the central banks have gone from restrictive monetary policy where they're raising rates to something that looks a little bit more favorable um, out in the in the marketplace. So a lot of people are looking at cash and saying, hey, should I put everything in, in a money market fund? It's yielding very well. And so that's kind of what this discussion is about. And so last year, like we mentioned, was was really unusual. It marked the first time in, the, uh, in, in uh, at least 45 years that both stocks and bonds were negative in the calendar year. And so the reason why that happened on the bond side is the Federal Reserve raised rates aggressively um, trying to battle inflation. And so uh, those hikes absolutely hurt results across the board. And so it was very unusual to have um, high quality bonds 
which normally provide diversification um, to to go down as much as they did. The overall bond market was down 13%. But, you know, when interest rates go up, that means cash, what cash is yielding, goes up as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a very unusual year. And, you know, that 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 uh, volatility along with the prospect of higher yields in money market funds has led investors to kind of flock to cash-like alternatives like money market accounts. Um, in fact, money market funds were at an all-time high of $5.6 trillion as of September 6th this year, um, according to the Investment Company Institute. So there's a lot of money sitting in money market funds right now that people have parked in there. And it's because cash investments still look compelling to many investors today, um, you know, given all the volatility we've seen and the fact they're yielding up to, you know, 5% now. But the Fed appears to be near a turning point. You know, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but at some point they're going to start, you know, they're going to stop raising rates and they're going to start lowering rates um, out in the future. And history teaches us that that's a time when you want to be careful and, and take an, there may be an opportunity there to shift your portfolio back toward bonds and take advantage of of better returns to come. Yeah. So the question is, is will the Fed um, continue to raise interest rates? And no one knows exactly when the Fed's going to stop. However, both markets and the Fed itself project that its key policy rate um, to be near peak at this point and then decline um, next year in 2024, uh, almost a percent. So no one knows that that's going to occur, but that's kind of what the markets are are, are feeling and, and um, forecasting at this point. So if you believe the Fed is finished or nearly there, uh, what does history tell us about this kind of market cycle? An analysis of the last four Fed hike, hiking cycles shows that cash investments decayed while stocks and bonds flourished. So that's the opportunity here. So you know, sitting in a money market fund today may feel comfortable um, at around 5% based on, um, you know, the current environment, um, especially after a, an extended period where the interest rates were zero. I mean, they were zero for a very, very long yes, time. So 5% is like, oh my goodness. Um, but the benefit of remaining in cash at current yields is eroded uh, by inflation. And that's one thing that people don't talk about. If you're making 5% on a money market and your inflation is 5%, then that's a 0% return. Um, so you got to make sure that you you have some, you need to keep some in cash. We're certainly not telling you that. Um, but these cash-like holdings um, may see some additional upside um, as the Fed finishes hiking rates. So we're talking specifically about bonds. Well, this is where the math matters. I mean, history shows that in the 18 months after the Fed ended hikes in the last four cycles, yields on cash-like investments traditionally have decayed pretty rapidly. The three-month Treasury yield, for instance, um, which is a benchmark of the Treasury securities with similar yields to you know CDs yeah. and uh, money market funds, it fell an average of 2.5%. Um, over that next 18 months. So if history is to repeat itself, I mean, money market yields would decline pretty rapidly, you know, once the Fed starts lowering interest rates. And, you know, investors would be better served by kind of actively investing in stocks and bonds in a more balanced portfolio. Yeah. So the question is, is where do you invest your cash today? Obviously, emergency fund, keeping in the money market fund, that's fine. Um, but if you agree that the Fed is nearly finished hiking and that cash yields may decline, over time, the question is, is what do you do today? And after the Fed's final hike in the last four cycles, 
both in equity and fixed income returns were strong in the year that followed. And for long-term investors, these sectors maintained relative strength over a five-year period. So today, fixed income is living up to its name. It's providing some solid income potential. Um, the, uh, the, the Bloomberg U.S. Uh, index, it's a, it's a popular benchmark for high-quality core bonds, um, you know, has a good, good yields, around 5%. And so that's roughly double its 10-year average. Um, and this income potential today provides a solid uh, starting point for return. So here's, here's the big deal about bonds. Um, the same exposure to interest rates that hurt bonds in 2022 could benefit bonds if rates begin to fall like they're forecasted to do. So here's a hypothetical example. Um, the index's duration, that's a measure of the interest rate sensitivity, is about 6.25 years. So that means if yields decline by nearly a percentage in 2024, investors could see upside of 6.25% in positive price return in addition to what the you know the bonds are yielding already, you know, three, four, five percent in the bonds. So together those income and price return components would equate to a hypothetical one-year return. It could go, go into the double digits. And we're talking about bonds here. Right? Yeah, so that's a significant opportunity. That's right. So, um, you know, under the same scenario, money market yields would drop below 5%. And again, these are all speculations. No one knows the timing associated with this. Um, but that's what happens when interest rates drop is, is that bonds um, make more and potentially significantly more. Yeah, that's right. And for stocks, when the Fed stops the tightening policy, um, one risk factor for the financial system dissipates. And, you know, as companies and consumers see their borrowing costs stabilize and eventually begin to decline, it provides a boost to the economy and corporate profits. So historically, stock investors have seen a significant benefit um, whenever rates start to come down. And, you know, at this time, um, a balanced strategy could also be attractive for more cautious investors because a balanced portfolio tends to hold more defensive positions in dividend-paying stocks and, you know, high-quality bonds. So if the economy slows or falls into recession, it could provide some good resilience. So there, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, we do see uh, people with a lot of cash on the sidelines. And, you know, it's uh, sometimes difficult and emotions become come into play. I mean, past losses sting for a long time. And today's seemingly attractive rates on CDs um, and money markets feel good. But as investors, you know, we know markets, they don't idle for long. Investors could become stuck in cash if they wait too long to get back into the market um, as better potential opportunities emer emerge. So, you know, Richard Young Associates, you know, we, we look at long-term success. Um, we firmly believe the best path forward is through a combination of of having cash for emergency funds and then having stock and bonds in your portfolio. So uh, we're optimistic about the future and, um, you know, we're certainly committed to, to working uh, with, with our clients and others out in the community to, to be successful in investing. And, you know, sometimes it's um, looking back at history and understanding that a little bit, but also not letting your emotions take over and take control. Right. And position yourself to take advantage of those opportunities when they do yep. do arise, which which may be sooner you know, than, than we think. So, all right. Well, good topic. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with um, the performance of the stock market. So, you know, we talked about 2022, um, the S&P 500, NASDAQ were down, you know, 20 to 30 percent roughly. And so the question is, is, well, they put money back in in the end of 2021, 
markets had a phenomenal three years, and then they experienced a down 20% in the S&P 500. The, you know, they're back up, you know, whatever S&P's back up. But right. the question is, is should I just move everything to cash and get four to 5%? And, mm. you know, I mean, if this is investments for, for the long term, um, the answer would be no. Um, right. You know, when, when we have a down year, about 25% of the years are down historically. So if you started investing right before the down year, it doesn't feel real good because you're going on two sure. years being underwater. But it's been a tough period. Yeah, yeah but you got to have you know a, a plan. You know, you, you know, you got to have something that is going to work in in good years and down years, even when the markets are down. So you got to stay focused on that long term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you certainly um, want to uh, uh, just be patient. You know, I mean, you've been through some tough periods here in the last year or two, and historically, when you look at those periods there is a, usually a really good period that follows it. So, you know, you don't want to go through the poor period and then bail before you, you have a, to get to take advantage of the good period. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so nobody knows whether we're going to have some, you know, higher than expected returns over the next year or two, but certainly could happen and markets are aligning for that. So you want to be patient and uh, just not bail on your portfolio just because you, you got started at a bad time. Yep. So good question. All right. And that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is reviewing your estate planning tools. Um, yeah, John, this is based on an article from Bottom Line Inc. Um, very recently, but estate planning decisions that, you know, made perfect sense when you put them into place maybe years ago, um, you know, might have undermined, have been undermined by all these life events or changes to the tax code that have taken place. And it's easy to overlook, you know, the fact that estate planning choices made long ago um, might have been rendered obsolete. Um, you know, things have changed significantly with the revised tax laws over the years. And so it's time to look at your estate plan and to make sure you don't have antiquated or useless structures in place now in your current plan. So here are some complications. Um that could arise, um, and there are five common state planning tools that we're going to review here and the decisions of how to reduce the potential impact of each of those. Um, the first one is bypass trust and credit shelter trust. I mean, in the current era of tax exemption portability, <clears throat> um, you know, question is, should you have those? I mean, the purpose of a bypass or credit shelter trust was to preserve the estate tax exemption of the first spouse to die. Um, that allowed a married couple um, to, to leave up to twice the estate tax exemption to their heirs without incurring estate taxes. You know, these trusts made a lot of sense for families when the estate tax exemption was low and before the portability was enacted into law. Yeah, and so the federal tax law now allows that portability and um, the portions of the exemption not used by the first spouse can be preserved uh, without the help of a, a trust, um, transferring it to the surviving spouse. And what's more, the estate tax exemption has been increased significantly to thir almost $13 million which is more than enough for the vast majority of, of couples to pass their estates, their heirs, without paying any federal estate taxes. So the $13 million exemption is scheduled to drop to around $6 million in 2026, but that's still, that's a very large number. It used to be down in the million-dollar exactly. range or $600,000 range, so it's significantly higher. 
Yeah, that does change the picture quite a bit. And um, and these changes to the estate tax exemption rules have rendered, you know, existing bypass and credit shelter trust unnecessary from a tax perspective. You know, although they may still protect assets from creditors, um, but the fact that they're they're worse, um, you know, they they may create uh, unnecessary tax bills and hassles for the heirs as well. Um, assets placed in these trusts, they don't usually re- receive a stepped-up basis upon death of the second spouse. And, you know, that is their cost basis is not increased to the fair market value. And that leaves heirs facing capital gains taxes that they wouldn't have had to pay if the assets were not in these trusts. Um, plus, I mean, families that have trust, uh, they have to file separate tax returns each year um, for most trusts, for an irrevocable trust that's a separate tax entity. And, you know, it's a pointless annoy- annoyance or expense that um, a trust may, that's no longer useful may incur. Um, so what do you do if you have those kind of trust in place now? Um, so if you no longer, uh, if it's no longer beneficial um, to have these bypass trusts or credit shelter trust and you don't need it to protect assets, um, ask an estate planning attorney to review your trust language to see if it includes a safety valve that allows for the trust termination. Um, you know, if no such safety valve was included, I mean, ask if the laws of the state in which the trusts were established uh, provide the right to terminate the trust. Yeah. So, um, yeah, another uh, type of trust is an insurance trust, which is um, it's uh, irrevocable. So you put it into the trust. You don't own it anymore. It contains a life insurance policy, and it's been a popular option for removing assets from an estate. So the children of the individual funding um, of the trust usually are named as the beneficiaries of the trust, with the assets traditionally distributed to them when they reach a specific age um, uh, in, a, in adulthood. So 25, 30, 35, you, you figure that out. Um, but if the beneficiary gets divorced or is sued after the trust assets have been distributed, then those trust assets could be taken and no longer protected. So there's things that happen after they're distributed that um, you know, open it up to it and other issues. That's right. So if you have an insurance trust that will distribute its assets automatically when the beneficiary reaches a certain age, you know, ask your attorney, um, and if you don't agree with that anymore, then ask your attorney to decant it into a new trust that instead allows for the assets to stay in the trust for as long as the, the state law permits. Um, you know, there's no advantage to removing assets from a trust before they're needed, Um, you know, that only exposes the assets to unnecessary risks. So if your insurance trust was drafted within the past decade, I mean, there's a greater chance that it's already, that it already works that way. I mean, state planning attorneys increasingly have recommended this approach to their clients in recent years, but, you know, be safe and check that out and make sure it allows those assets to stay in the trust. Um, You know, another, uh, a uh, tool that has changed quite a bit is second-to-die life insurance policies. Um, yeah, families that expect their estates to face hefty uh, estate taxes, sometimes they'll purchase life insurance policies to help their heirs pay for those looming tax bills. But estate tax exemptions have risen, you know, as John just mentioned, from 675000 in 2001 
to over 13 million today, or around 13 million today. And as noted, that 13 million figure is scheduled to fall to six, around 6 million in 2026. But it should remain high enough that most households that bought insurance policies decades ago to help pay for state taxes are not going to have to pay, you know, state taxes after all. Yeah. So if you have that situation, stop thinking of the life insurance policy as necessary to pay the taxes because you may not have to pay them. Uh, Rather, you know, take a look at your future policy premiums um, as investments, which might or might not be worth making. And so also ask your advisor or planner to crunch the numbers to determine if it makes financial sense for you to continue funding that policy uh, maybe stop funding it, but keep it in force, or maybe um, sell the policy altogether. So just kind of re-evaluating that that structure for all yeah. of these to see if it's you know valid under current current law. And that's what I like to do with a lot of old policies that people have is look at them as an investment, you know, rather than you know insurance per se. Look at them as an investment for the heirs, and determine you know going forward. Are the expected future premiums greater or less than the expected death benefit Mm -hmm. from the policy? And just if you can look at it that way, I mean, then you can determine whether a policy is good to keep or not. So that's basically what they're saying here. Yeah. And then um, and then there's also the spousal lifetime asset trust uh, splats, as they call it. Um, You know, these trusts can be effective way to remove assets from a married couple's estate while still maintaining some access to those assets. I mean, it typically works like this. A husband sets up a trust that names his wife as the primary beneficiary, and while the spouse sets up a different trust, naming her husband as the beneficiary. And then those assets that are placed in these trusts are removed from the couple's estate. Um, But the couple maintains certain access to the money because the partners are the primary beneficiaries of each other's trust. So each other them each of them have access to the money that's in the other one's trust. Um, and these were really popular back in um, 2020 and 2021 when wealthy couples were preparing for you know possible estate tax changes under the Biden administration. You know, but what if the couple has set up these trusts and then later get divorced? I mean, not only would each former spouse now have a trust that names his or her ex as the primary beneficiary, but they each would be legally responsible for paying the income taxes on the trust that benefits someone that they're no longer married to. So that doesn't work very well. So if that's the case, you know, couples have not set up um, these yet, but are considering such a structure in the future can avoid this problem by having a floating spouse clause written into the language. Um, so that's what you need if you're going to set these up. You know, rather than identifying a spouse by name as a beneficiary, that clause allows the primary beneficiary um, to say something like "whoever I'm married to" um, to automatically remove an ex-spouse if you divorce. Um, and you you also might consider a self-settled domestic asset protection trust. That's what they call it, uh, DAPT, hmm. <laughs> which you're you know, what's your name, the beneficiary. And, you know, then if you have no spouse, you can still get access to it. Couples who are already set up, who already set these trusts up um, without this clause will have to take into account the tax burden, any future divorce settlement. So it's just got to be, 
you got to consider that yep. if you're getting divorced, if you have these complicated trust structures. Yeah. And another thing that you need to take a look at is uh, designated agents um, in the passage of time. So if you've ever had a power of attorney drafted or selected someone to make important health or financial decisions for you in the event that you become unable to do so, you need to take a, um, a look at that. I mean, sometimes it's um, you have agents for uh, safe deposit boxes or long-term care insurance policies or social security benefits and you know having a representative uh, associated with future benefit decisions and you know that's just the start so really all of these items um, you should really take a look at your estate planning tools and evaluate do you have the right people on the agent standpoint and that really just means someone that's going to come in and help you make decisions financially and in the health are the right people today based on the circumstances. Yeah, that's right. Just like a power of attorney, you know, things do change. And so you need to update those tools because um, the people you selected years ago might no longer be the best choices. And, you know, some might have moved away, died or, or given, you know, your reason to doubt their decision making abilities. So, you know, even if everyone you picked is still worthy choice, I mean, there's a good chance that you name multiple people over years and that forces, you know, kind of a, a, the group to coordinate, you know, efforts to make decisions on your behalf in emergency, which is sometimes less than ideal arrangement. So, you know, just review those, go, go see an attorney, get those up to date. Um, if you have those in place and just the whole, the whole message of all of this estate planning discussion is to review your current plan mm -hmm. and just make sure that you have it up to date because a lot has changed over the last, you know, five and 10 years with the, with the tax laws and uh, a lot changes in your personal situation. So you need to review your estate plan. Just make sure you're using the right tools. Make sure that, you know, if you have some trust structure in place, that it's still valid. It still makes sense. Um, you can't just put these things in place 10, 20 years ago and expect them to still work and be a you know, applicable yeah. today. Yeah. So that's really the moral of the story here. All right. And that leads us up here to our last item. And that is the prescription of the week. Uh, have you ever, have you flown Pan Am airlines recently? Not recently, John. Not recently. No, <laughs> never. In fact, that there's, was a, there's a reason in the nine eighties, they're right? bankrupt. Yeah. That's what I hear. Yeah. So that's the prescription. Should I invest in individual stocks? The answer is Generally, no. Um, we know a lot of right. people like doing that. And if you do do that, don't do more than 10% of your your investment total. Um, I made an investment. I had, um, I don't remember, I know my grandmother gave me about 700 bucks. And uh, mm. I don't remember, recall what it was what you bought? from. No, I bought Pan Am. Oh, did you? Yeah. And so I actually was, when I was cleaning out our financial records and purging them, like I gave a prescription six months ago, I found the um, the documents from that purchase, wow. and then also a year later calling them back saying, "Hey, there's a zero on this, on yeah, this, statement. this statement. What happened?" Yeah, it just I mean it just went bankrupt. So um, yeah. as a lot of airlines have done over over time, and a lot of co companies have as well. So anyway, Tammy has those two statements, and she framed them for me, and I'm going to bring uh, them in the go. office and put them up on my uh, wall. So yeah. individual stocks are more risky. No one knows which ones are going to do the best. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Like I should have bought Apple or I should have bought Amazon. Well, you know, there's there's you know two thousand other stocks that aren't around when those companies started. Right. That you just there's no way to tell which ones are going to be the winners. So that's exactly diversify. right. Yeah, that's a great example. And you know, I just sat down with somebody this morning that you know talked about their company stock, how it dropped so much in the past, 
you know, a couple of years and, um, and a lot of his coworkers really got stuck in that stock because yeah. they had a, a, a bunch of their 401k plan in it. So, um, yeah, you just want to be very, very careful about individual stocks. You don't want to own them in general. You want to be diversified. Um, but if you do own them, make sure that's a very small holding, not a significant part of your overall, uh, portfolio. So yeah, great prescription of the week. All right. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Have a good one. contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 